1: welcome to midas touch legal a f if it's saturday it is legal a f live if it's sunday it is legal a f ben micellis here with michael Popak, the popockian michael Popak, how are you doing this weekend
2: i'm doing great it is a crisp fall day the beginning of October in New York. And I'm I'm really pleased to be back with you and our listeners and followers. And we got another action packed day of uh, talking about a night and talking about, um, you know, legal issues that developed over the week and that our our people are, are anxiously waiting to listen to our analysis concerning. We had Jill Weinbanks Popak on the Midas Touch
1: Brothers podcast. She is one of the co-hosts of uh, Sister-in-Law, another legal podcast, then when we look at the rankings, we're often kind of (laughs) neck and neck with sisters in law. And I mean, Jill Weinbanks was an incredible interview, Popak. I would tell our listeners, if you haven't heard the Midas Touch podcast, go back and check that interview. You know, when she was a young prosecutor, she was one of the only women in the DOJ. And I think the only woman on the team that was prosecuting Uh, the co-conspirators in Watergate, and she was given a witness who was President Nixon's secretary um, to cross-examine. It was originally just supposed to be a chain of custody witness regarding the Nixon tapes, and just to corroborate that these tapes are admissible evidence, and you would literally just call a custodian witness like that and say, are these true and correct copies of the audio? But a week before or two weeks before it turned out that Nixon had deleted major portions of those tapes. So all of a sudden, a custodian witness, a chain of custody witness became a key witness. And that became one of the Perry Mason moment cross examinations where Jill Weinbank showed that it was impossible at the story that was being told by Nixon's secretary, that it was inadvertently deleted by where she was positioned, that it couldn't have happened that way. So it was a really cool interview. It was a really cool experience hearing that war story. We like sharing our war stories, but Popak, the lesson there to me was, When you're a lawyer, you really never know what's going to be thrown your way. You may have a chain of custody witness. You may have uh, a certain fact scenario and lots of clients go, what's the plan? I said, well, here's the plan right now. But in law, you have to have fluidity. Fluidity is the key word. And from one day to the next, based on facts, things may change. And a good lawyer is able to adapt to those changes. yeah,
2: Yeah, I do. And let me give you some personal examples. I call it, I take it from the, military, the fog of war, you and I do a lot of planning to get ready for a trial. If I'm doing a full day witness at a trial, it may take me, well, it took me a whole year to get to that point of being able to cross examine or direct examine that witness, but just to prepare the outline for that. Sometimes it's a yellow pad and I go up to the podium and we do a quick cross, but a lot of times it's methodically prepared, but then you have to see what the witness is going to do in response. Even if you've Taken a deposition of that witness, they may deviate from that testimony because they didn't like it or they don't remember it. And you have to sort of follow that along, ready to either impeach the witness because they've so deviated under oath from their prior testimony that you now have the ability to impeach them. And we can talk about that at another time, or just leading them through their examination. But the the way I tell clients, like you do, when I'm either evaluating a case or giving them a status update is, Don't fall in love with any witness, either for us or against us. I have thought a lot about how great a witness is going to be for us, an expert that we retained and prepared, a fact witness that is supposedly friendly to us. And some of those witnesses have been the worst witnesses I've ever seen at trial or in deposition. And other witnesses that I had white knuckles about, oh boy, this is going to be, this is going to be a bumpy ride on this witness Because of something they said or an angle that I used during the deposition, I was able to make that witness into the best thing I've ever seen. So witnesses you think are going to be great, sometimes crap out and witnesses that you are worried about sometimes are the best witnesses in the case. And lawyers like you and I that practice this practice for a living have to be ready for that and literally on the balls of our feet, ready to adjust depending upon how that witness does under, under cross or direct examination.
1: Tell you who i think are the best witnesses for me Popak. the best witnesses i think are children because children are honest they answer questions yes or no they listen to the questions if they don't know the if they don't understand the question they say i don't understand the question and you truly get the truth when you're speaking to kids the worst witnesses are oftentimes highly educated professionals who want to keep on talking and talking and talking and show how smart they are during a deposition and an examination. And even if they're 100% right on what they're saying, they're just speaking word salad. And Uh when I have someone like that on the opposite end, when I'm cross-examined, I just sit back. I don't know what you do, Popak. I just sit back and listen. And I go, "Uh uh-huh. And I just let them believe they're so smart and intelligent. I go, uh huh. Okay. And tell me more. Tell me more. Because the question just may have been, where were you on December 1, 2020? (laughs) And if they want to provide all that additional information, they may create additional data that I was unaware of. And you as a lawyer and Popak, this is a skill that you're great at, that I think I'm good at, that other lawyers um, that are good cross examiners can do is we listen we listen and then we have our documents memorized pretty much because you're going through it and then you go through all those things and you walk the witness through the story and then you're ready to show them why they're wrong and why they're lying.
2: And so there's just, there's just opportunities where, you know, clients or, or opponents give you gifts and you have to take those gifts where they lead you. And that could be for very good result in your case.
1: The biggest gift Popak of all, Um, is when uh, the client, um, well, the other client, the person on the other side of the case, not your client, when the defendant or the plaintiff, depending on which side decides, they're not going to even participate in the legal process. Um, And so the case gets either dismissed for failure to prosecute, if there's a plaintiff who's not pursuing their case, or on the defense side, a default judgment being entered or their answer being stricken um, if they are not participating in the legal process and not complying with legal orders. So we have an example of this this week. There was a story how Alex Jones, uh, how a court found that Alex Jones was liable to a number of the families uh, who who lost uh, children during the Sandy Hook school shooting Massacre. Alex Jones defamed these families, called the shootings false flags, threw up a bunch of conspiracy, just horrible, horrible conspiracy lies that said that these, that basically Sandy Hook didn't happen. Um, Can't even imagine anything more traumatic as a parent, one going through the biggest tragedy in the world, losing your children through a school shooting, losing your children at all, and then having a fucking idiot like Alex Jones go out and then say that that was somehow uh, like theater, that 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 didn't really happen and none of that is real. So the families sued Alex Jones in Texas uh, and Alex Jones simply did not respond to the discovery, he didn't respond to process, he engaged in so many discovery abuses, like literally just not responding at all. And you would think Popak for a blowhard like that, you respond, right? You you, you, you prove, prove your case, prove that it's a false flag if you're gonna have the audacity to go after victims, families like that. Um, Did nothing, did nothing. Um, and that's kind of a theme I think we have here, Popak, with a lot of these GQ peers. They want to say what they want to say publicly so they could fundraise. And then when they're in a court, they're chicken shit.
2: Right. You had Sidney Powell, who claimed it was all her opinion, and it wasn't everything she said that, that the, about the big lie of the election was really just her opinion. And you got Alex Jones of Infowars, um, you know, taking the disgusting position that him using uh, the hoax uh, attack on 26 people who died, who really died in Sandy Hook Elementary School that day. It was his opinion that it was a hoax. I mean, that, that is so despicable and an assault and an affront to the First Amendment that he has his opportunity in the court of law in Texas to defend himself. His argument is anything I say on my podcast or anywhere else, Is First Amendment protected? And that's just not a proper recitation of the contours of the First Amendment. Our followers and listeners after, if you can believe it, Ben, we're on episode 25. Episode 25 of listening to Legal AF know that. They know that. They know the First Amendment doesn't protect those kind of statements. And those aren't opinions, especially ones that aren't fact-based. In the case itself, the other side said, all right, Mr. Jones, you say it was a hoax. You say you have facts to support it. You've said you've had facts to support it on your podcast. Produce the documents. Produce the documents that support your belief. What did you read that made you believe it was a hoax? What research did you do? What documents did you look at? And he produced all of nothing. For our viewers tonight, that's a zero. For our listeners, a big fat goose egg. He didn't have any. He didn't participate in the discovery process, which is his obligation as a defendant in a lawsuit, that's our legal process. And so the judge, having warned him, having ordered him to produce documents, having found him in contempt, and having had him violate all of those orders, finally said, Fine, on liability, you're now in default. We don't need a trial on liability. By your actions and by your flouting the orders of the court and the judicial process, you have now. Uh, waived your right to have to have a defense on liability. We will now go to a jury trial on damages and there'll be a jury trial on damages. Now, all of that does not mean that Alex Jones doesn't have the right to appeal this default ruling. And so his lawyer took to a podium or took to a, a press conference and said, this is an example of the First Amendment being crucified. I mean, look at the language that InfoWars' his lawyer uses. Crucifixion, which has religious connotations, the fir- combined with the First Amendment to support somebody saying that 26 people, including 20 children, dying is a hoax I mean, this is how far we have gotten from morality in our society among the right wing conspiracy theorists. So here's what's going to happen. He's going to lose. A jury's going to find against them and award a lot of money to the families of Sandy Hook against uh, against Alex Jones. And they're going to own InfoWars, InfoWars, whatever assets it has. I don't know what it has. Whatever it has is going to end up going to these families. And I don't think he wins an ultimate appeal. Do you, Ben? No, he's not going to win an ultimate appeal. And here's the thing
1: there the first amendment argument that alex jones is making that he has a first amendment right to defame victims of sandy hook there's no first amendment right for that there's a body of law and defamation that said alex jones could have participated in the legal process he could have produced what evidence that he thought he had that supports his first amendment speech and then he could have filed motions like a motion to dismiss Or a summary judgment motion or presented evidence at trial showing that he had a First Amendment right. No one was preventing him from making those arguments. The only person who prevented him from making those arguments was himself by not making those arguments and then going to their refuge of their conspiracy theory 4chan 8chan kind of message board things that they go to and then spread the conspiracy further that their First Amendment rights are being taken away when they had every ample opportunity to present those facts. As absurd as they
2: are, they had the opportunity to prevent those facts in a court of law. The the thing that I find always so uh, maddening about the right wing of that party of the GQP is they pick and choose among the Constitution as if there's only the amendments that they care about and nothing else is present in that document or in constitutional analysis or legal precedent. And so they constantly refer to Second Amendment rights and our First Amendment, and they ignore every other aspect of the Constitution, separation of church and state, um, uh, right to assembly, um, all the other things that you and I get really hot and bothered about to protect, they ignore. And you have an obligation in this country if you are a plaintiff or a defendant or a party to participate in our legal process. And if you don't, it's at your peril. It is at the orders of judges. It could be criminal contempt at the very highest level. And we're going to talk about criminal contempt and the powers of Congress when witnesses don't participate in a process. But in just to make it clear for anybody that stumbles upon our podcast by accident, if you are sued, as a, or you're suing, or you're a party, or a witness. You have to participate in that process. And if you don't, you could be subject to civil and criminal exposure.
1: Think about it, Popak, the GQP. It's very similar to religious extremism and how they interpret religious texts and find three words and then read them out of context to support some of the most Uh, extreme hateful acts on fellow humans when in fact the totality of what's being encouraged is peace and love and other things. And they pull three, three words over here, three words over there from the constitution, from various laws to create this fabrication that ultimately is to Uh, impose their kind of Taliban style vision of the United States. And look, elections have consequences. Elections have consequences because right now, one of the things Biden's been doing a great job at, I think he's done a good job at a lot of things, but here I would give him an A plus is appointing judges, uh, federal judges, diverse federal judges um, in district courts and courts of appeal throughout the United States. Um, and we go back to Trump appointees, just look at, uh, what happened this week. There was a, uh, this week, a judge who was appointed by Donald Trump, a judge named Trevor McFadden, right. uh, he, the prosecutor's recommended a fairly, in my view, lenient sentence on some insurrectionist who had pled guilty. I think yeah. it was two. Danielle Boyle. Yeah. It was like the prosecutors recommended two months of home confinement for uh, some of
2: these insurrectionists yeah. like detention in high school,
1: like what we've done during COVID. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like right. we've all Stay been home. under home. just literally do the same thing that you did during covid, except the one day you decided to lead an insurrection against the United States. So, frankly, the prosecution provided no um, real significant uh, penalty. And we've talked about on prior legal AFs that lots of federal judges were critical of the prosecutors for doing stuff like this, recommending two months of home confinement. I'm critical of that. If you were an insurrectionist, Two months home confinement. That's like sign me uh, up. You're, two months home confinement. Are you kidding me? That's like a reward. Right. If they tell,
2: uh, oh, right, right. On that note, if they had told those people that were gathering in the park at the rally for Trump and they've done all the planning to lead into this, that here's what we're going to do. We're going to storm the Capitol. We're going to use violent attack we're going to attack Capitol Police and maybe kill them along the way. We're going to breach the doors of our democracy, the cradle of our democracy. And we're going to look for Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence and others we to try them. to kill them. And, and at the end, be ready. You might get two months home confinement. People will be like, where do, where's the T-shirt? Where do I sign? Where's the merch? I'm in.
1: It's really absurd. But here. Right. United States District Court Judge Trevor McFadden questioned why federal prosecutors should have brought more cases against those accused in the 2020 summertime protests. That was what his concern was. And this federal judge said, I'm only going to give these insurrectionists probation uh, because I think that the two months of home confinement was too, too harsh. What you should have done, prosecutors, was go after BLM, You know, this festers into their whole thing that Trump says, where were you with Antifa? Where with where were you with BLM? Okay, let's let's be clear. Um, None of them, none of them created insurrections
2: and tried to kill and tried to storm the Capitol. But, But even but even even more, even more poignant of a point is he's wrong. The judge cited statistics that were incorrect in the over the summertime protests. There were over 300 prosecutions of BLM and other protesters and Antifa or whatever they were, including some that receive very, very, very harsh sentences. Contrast that with the 600 so far that have been charged, which wasn't hard because they're all in one area with video cameras, 600 that have been charged. And all of us have commented on how so far how lenient the sentences have been, including the chief judge of the federal circuit that's responsible for for sentencing these people. So this judge is beyond an outlier. All I had to do when you and I started preparing for tonight, all I had to do was look up his background. Although on paper, it looked pretty good. It was like, well, he was a U.S. attorney or a U.S. attorney. He was in the Department of Justice, you know, all under Trump. Then I saw he was a federalist under the Federalist Society. And he's a member of a church that has, you know, problems with same sex marriage and union. And I'm thinking, OK, I know where this is going. So, you know, he's decided to be the lone voice in the wilderness that somehow the Jan Six insurrectionists are being treated too harshly. No one believes that. No thinking person believes that. And that's why there is such a crisis right now in this country. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court in its new term that opens on Monday. The Supreme Court, for instance, one of the co-equal branches of government just had its lowest approval ratings among the public in the history of the Gallup poll. People do not trust institutions like the federal court system, like the Supreme Court because of decisions and rulings like this one. And just to your point, Ben, because I thought it was a really great one, and I don't want to leave it. Biden has appointed over 65 justices to the the federal bench since he's been in office in a year. It's a pretty good number. I think up to 65 or 70 percent of that are women and people of color. Those numbers are remarkable. Trump did the opposite. It was all old white guys. Well, I was say old white guys like you and I, all white guys like me <laughs> who were appointed to the exclusion of every other member of equity or diversity.
1: I would say we're well, the only part that you're wrong there, Popak, <laughs> is it was young white guys, not old. Oh, white. Oh, that's guys. true. Good point. <laughs> it was and, guys like you <laughs> and very. And so this judge, Trevor McFadden, for example, he graduated law school in 2006. You know, I'm dating myself a little bit because that that doesn't mean he's been a lawyer for 15 years. I was, you know, and I was saying I graduated law school in 2010 and I've been a lawyer now for 11 years. But I mean, he could have been he was one year removed from being a 3L, which is what we call a third year when I was a first year. So
2: he's he's a peer of mine. And that's a very good point, because these are, to remind our listeners and followers, federal bench is a lifetime appointment. They take senior status at a certain point. They sort of get pressured at around 70 to go come in less. And at the... Um, Well, let let me rephrase. At the federal bench below the Supreme Court, it's around 70. you got to take senior status on the Supreme Court. It's lifetime appointment. So the younger you put the judges on in their 40s up to 50, the longer impact a a president has on the face of the judiciary. That's why it's so scary. You know, they don't want 60 year olds. Ruth Bader Ginsburg would never be considered today. She was she was on the very old side. I think she was pushing 60 which isn't old to anybody on this podcast, but she was she's too old for today to be considered for a federal position because the the presidents want to impact the judiciary, not just today, but for generation after generation. And that's why, back to your point, elections matter because it's the direct link to the judiciary.
1: It's one of the frustrating things about being a lawyer, too, where you feel like Sisyphus Sometimes And sometimes your case feels like Sisyphean uh, tasks, because imagine me, you, Popak, getting a case where we're representing a victim of a police shooting. And for whatever reason, we have to file the case in an area where this judge, Trevor McFadden, Um, sits and presides and we get assigned. We talked about in past legal AFs, the assignments. um, There's got to be jurisdiction in a location. You have to file it in the right venue. But assuming this incident happened where Trevor McFadden is a judge, um, assuming that, um, and it's in the District of Columbia, assuming there's venue there and we have a case in front of him, who listening and who watching thinks on a on a police case where we represent a victim that Trevor McFadden is going to rule in our favor or that we're going to have a very uphill battle in a case like that. And you can think about a lot of cases where there may be a corporate defendant, an employment case, uh, a judge who's willing to look at the insurrectionists and say, two months home confinement is too harsh. How do you think they feel about employee rights? How do you think they feel about unions? How do you think they feel about victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault? Think through those things because you may be the greatest lawyer in the world. I'll tell you what, you put that case in front of Trevor McFadden, good luck with that and and you could make the greatest arguments it's so hard sometimes you know in popoc we've been sharing a lot of personal stories here on, on this podcast it's become very personal but it's very hard sometimes where you put your heart and soul into a case as a lawyer you know representing someone who's clearly been wronged and you do your best and you get assigned a bad judge and you have to go back and you have to tell the client despite great evidence this judge has rulings, for example, that not all sexual assaults have gender components into it. The fuck? How would not all sexual assaults have a gender component? You know, you get rulings like it that. sounds it, very
2: familiar, by the way.
1: It does. And then you think to yourself and you go, what in the world? You know, and then you have to have a difficult conversation with the client and, anyway.
2: And, and, and no, and stay on that point. I think it's a good one. And it's an interesting one to our to our followers and listeners who sort of, as you and I joke, sort of make a meal out of the things that you and I talk about, you know, and the federal judges don't just, even when they retire or they step off the bench, they don't go away quietly into the night. They end up reappearing as mediators and worse arbitrators in, 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 uh, in arbitration matters where You know, maybe even written into the contract on the arbitration right, it says, and there will be a federal judge or an ex federal judge as our arbitrator, which is like private justice, where you and I and our clients have to pay somebody, in this case, an ex federal judge, to make a ruling in a case or an ex state judge. And so they get the imprimatur and the credential of having been a federal or state judge, probably elected, sometimes appointed. And then they kind of have a life in the law shaping an shaping results and impacting people's lives. And they might have been a terrible federal judge, but they may end up being my arbitrator in a case. And now they're just a terrible arbitrator as well. And we got to look at our clients and say, we have a great case. We have a terrible jurist who's going to decide this great case, which lowers our expectations of our ability to obtain obtain justice. So we head into
1: October. We head into uh, the new term for the Supreme Court. Popak, before I I want to talk through our listeners, those who are watching this about this coming term, for the United States Supreme Court. Before we do that, though, we have some updates. We've got some updates, updates, updates for the uh, listeners and viewers of the Midas Touch podcast. The first update, and I wanna go through these quickly, Popak, to give you enough time to really talk through some of the Supreme Court cases. January 6th committee into the insurrection, they are seeking testimony from insurrectionists and those who pled uh, guilty, who apparently are either getting home confinement or probation (laughs) after what we're hearing there. But they're seeking testimony there from the insurrectionists. A lot of lawyers for the insurrectionists said that they've gotten um, subpoenas and requests for that testimony. Another update about January 6th, um, we talked about How the January 6th committee has sent letters and requests to the National Archives and other executive branch agencies regarding Trump's role and involvement in the January 6th insurrection. It's been reported that Donald Trump plans to assert executive privilege. Um, and to file a lawsuit if indeed Joe Biden produces those records and agrees to produce those records. Which he will. Which, yeah, Joe Biden. There's about a 60-day process where Joe Biden can decide whether he will produce uh, these records regarding January 6th. Um, I think it'll take him about one day to do it, (laughs) and and he'll turn it over. We already know from Merrick Garland, that Merrick Garland has stated that it's the position of the Department of Justice that all those things that happen on January 6th do not involve executive privilege. We've talked about that on past episodes of Midas Touch podcast. And we compared that to other areas where Merrick Garland and the DOJ to, I think, the chagrin of a lot of Midas Touch listeners um, and watchers said that the Lafayette Square protest where Trump was there and the E. Jean Carroll, the DOJ was taking the position that those were things that were the course and scope of executive privilege because one happened at a press conference for the president. The other happened in his role as executive, as commander in chief and executive, leaving the White House grounds. That frustrated a lot of people. But on January 6th, they said every aspect of January 6th is outside the course and scope. These are uh, political in nature and an insurrection. And that's not what presidents are supposed to do. Popak, any other thoughts about the January 6th updates?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot I think there's a lot to update them on. I, I think the committee now that is is led by Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney are going into overdrive on getting witnesses to cooperate and give testimony. And they've uh, so first they're starting to subpoena and ask for testimony from insurrectionists who have pled guilty. There's 60 of those and ask their lawyers to make them available to provide testimony to the committee. They've subpoenaed and are looking for the testimony from the very innermost sanctum of Trump's White House, including his, chief of, his ex-chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and Steve Bannon, and others. There's at least four of them. And so the question is, if these people don't respond to Congress, what do they do about it? Well, in the past, they didn't do much, but they have tremendous powers that you and I have outlined in prior legal AFs uh, of contempt Civil contempt, referral to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution. And and since a uh, 1927 Supreme Court case, as we lead into the Supreme Court analysis today of McGrain versus Dougherty, which the Supreme Court established that Congress has the power of criminal contempt and to jail people for violating orders of Congress under their inherent, what's called inherent contempt authority. And And while past Congresses didn't seem to have the brass ones to exercise those inherent authorities, and they've also been referred to as dormant, they've never, haven't been used maybe since the 1920s. I think this committee and this Congress with Nancy Pelosi at the top, with Benny Thompson, with Liz Cheney is not going to hesitate. They're being guided, as our followers and listeners probably know, by Jamie Raskin, who's a member of the nine person Jan six committee is a constitutional scholar in his own right and constitutional lawyer and does that for a living. And he's guiding this committee on issuing not just pieces of paper that can be ignored, but subpoenas and citations of contempt that lead to arrest by the Sergeant of arms of Congress. And so sit back, get the popcorn legal AF followers, because this, This investigation has teeth and this investigation has legs. It's going to it's not going to be concluded. uh, A lot of court watchers or Congress watchers believe until a year from this January. January 2023 is when the Jan 6 committee is probably going to issue its report because that's that's how long its funding is for. So they fear that if we lose the midterms uh, coming up and they don't have the majority, they won't get a renewed budget. So they are rushing It sounds like it sounds like they're not rushing, but they are rushing to complete this complicated investigation within the next 14 or 15 months. But you and I, I guarantee, are going to be reporting over the next six months or a year about what does it mean when they just issued a criminal citation? What does it mean that they just sent the sergeant of arms to knock on somebody's door to arrest them? Um, This is going to be historically uh, fascinating for you and I to talk about and our listeners to follow. We will keep our
1: listeners updated. Other update, popoc that in federal district court in Texas, we talked on our last podcast about um, the case before Judge Pittman, he sits in district court in the Austin area. You made the great analogy that Austin is, though, I forget what you said, if it was the Soho of Texas, the, the Greenwich, Greenwich Village the Grand- of Texas, the Greenwich Village of Texas. Lots of people like that analogy. But Austin based U.S. District Court Judge Robert Pittman held about a three hour oral argument following the DOJ lawsuit against the state of Texas for what we clearly believe Popak to be a highly uh, disgusting and unconstitutional law, the bounty hunter law, the anti-woman and childbearing person law that turns neighbors into vigilantes to sue uh, privately um, and recover $10,000 for ratting out someone who's Uh, had an abortion six six weeks after Um, uh, Popak, what's going on here?
2: Yeah. Yeah, this is this is really getting down to hand to hand combat here between the Department of Justice and the state of Texas. Um, They filed the lawsuit. The Department of Justice did to have the uh, SB eight law declared unconstitutional and a violation of the Supremacy Clause. Of the U.S. Constitution on September nine, we're just here uh, on the you know a couple of days into October, and we're already before a federal judge, this Judge Pittman, on a full briefing schedule on an injunction to enjoin the um, SB eight as being unconstitutional. And let me just re- let me just repeat some of the language that the uh, deputy attorney general um, for the Department of Justice arguing the case used both in briefing and in the three hour oral argument. He said that the SB 8 is an unprecedented, unprecedented scheme of vigilante justice that imperils the supremacy of the U.S. Constitution and employs. Uh, I found this fascinating I've never used this phrase in a brief, but I will now employs turrets. So those, those are those military items where you hide guns and other weaponry um, behind, you know, walls or, um, you know, almost what, like what cannons would be hidden behind, that there's turrets in this, in this statute that are hidden and unpredictable and unconstitutional. And that this, and that this is the argument that they're making to get around what we think is this, too smart by half creative statutory scheme where no state actor expressly is involved with the implementation of the abortion ban. So therefore, who do you enjoin, judge? You know, Texas isn't really involved. It's just it's just local people. Well, the Department of Justice has said that the, the state has effectively deputized those Individual people, those private citizens, and made them agents of the state. And if they're operating as agents of the state, then they can be enjoined. They can have an injunction filed against them. So, look, here's my handicapping of it. I think that the injunction is going to be issued by Judge Pittman. I think, and I want to hear your opinion, I think he's going to enjoin courts, state courts and federal courts, well, certainly state courts, from entertaining any lawsuits that are filed under this illegal and unconstitutional bounty law. And I think he's going to enjoin any person from acting as a state actor to enforce SB8 through the vigilante bounty system. What do you think? I think so.
1: I think it creates incongruity between federal law and constitutional pro- protections um, espoused there and by turning individuals into state actors that violate the constitution through their through their acts. I tend to agree with you, Popak, that I think we will see an injunction coming. Recall, he denied, he being Judge Pittman, denied the preliminary injunction, um, which seemed concerning, but he wanted the issues to be fully briefed. The issues were fully briefed, and this was the oral argument uh, that happened, and we had told um, our Midas Touch Legal AF listeners that would be taking place um, uh, beginning of October. And indeed, it did. Final quick update, Popak, on the Letitia James, Tish James, Attorney General of New York, her criminal investigation in the New York AG office, rather criminal investigation and civil investigation into the Trump organization, its agents and affiliates as well, Donald Trump, Trump Jr. Uh, Shouldn't surprise us. This is the theme that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast that uh, the GQP likes to uh, uh, they like to come up with all of these public uh, excuses. But when it comes down to actually process and participating as uh, in the legal process where they can put up or shut up They don't turn over documents. They don't participate in discovery and they delay, delay, delay. But their time of reckoning ultimately comes. And it looks for the like the Trump organization here. It is coming. The court said um, that, you know, has basically found that the Trump organization has not been participating as it was required to do. And if they don't start turning over the documents that are requested, a third party e-discovery firm would be hired that would then go through all of these records. Usually you would use like key terms and search terms to try to pull these emails and records. My own guest, Popak, and I hate to be a cynic here, but with Trump, it probably is accurate that I'm sure, a lot of the electronic documents they've purged and have thrown out. And I think, you know, that's probably what they're buying time for. But for Trump, it's all going to be asserting executive privilege, trying to just delay, 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 even though yeah. there's probably no basis here being the Trump organization, just asserting every privilege, claim, bullshit thing to basically. And here's what Trump's going to do he's going to just dump this on his kids and just try to stretch this out, you know, through the rest of his,
2: the rest of his, until time. he dies until he dies. totally. Well, let me, let me give our followers and listeners on legal AF a little bit of hope, because sometimes when we give updates, I, I don't want the takeaway, or, and I know you don't either, or the read to be, Oh, this is hopeless. The reason you and I do this is because we want to empower our listeners and followers with factual analysis and information so they understand what's going on in their own lives. And if they need to, they can debate it with others on the street and help us protect democracy. That's why we do this. The good news is, in terms of the good people wearing the white hat in our society, New York Attorney General James has a tremendously good track record of beating Donald Trump. Her office beat Donald Trump and the and the BS bullshit Trump charities were all shut down by the state of New York um, under under uh, Attorney General James. And now she's turned for the last year and a half. She's turned her attention and trained her fire on the Trump organization. And already we have, you know, the Weisselberg father and son being indicted. Matt Calamari about to be indicted. Um, he's being asked to cooperate first. And if he doesn't, he will be indicted. And And she just gave a speech earlier in the week here in New York. It was covered here in New York. I'm not sure how much it was nationally. So let me bring it to our followers and listeners attention. She was not coy at all during the speech. She talked about her, where she is in her career, the takedown of Andrew Cuomo and her, and her comments about him personally, about him failing to take responsibility for the Things that he's that they alleged and they investigated that he did, but then she turned to the Trump organization and she said, and I'm not kidding, this is how she put it. Um, there are you know, get ready, we're not done, you know, stay tuned. There are more prosecutions and indictments coming, so she is not done. I know everyone's like, hurry up, hurry up, indict, 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 but in order to have a case. That, that withstands all of the pressure testing of a lawsuit and a judge and motion practice by the other side, you gotta make it as airtight as possible. You gotta get every I dot and every T cross and every document you can obtain. And like you said, giving Trump more time to participate in the legal process is usually a good thing for the prosecution, because the more time he's given, the more rope he's given, the more he's going to screw up. If he's doing the things that you mentioned, Ben, if he is what we call spoliating evidence, he's destroying evidence that's going to be found out. The next thing Attorney General James is going to do is ask for the hard drives and the physical phones like they did with Rudy Giuliani and the iPads they're going to turn it over to a forensic expert who's going to get into the metadata the electronic you know data and fingerprints that exist on every document and the and this expert's going to be able to tell you if the document was altered when it was altered if it was erased when it was erased so you know it, i hope he try i hope Trump tries it because that will just give more evidence that'll be a gift to the prosecution So I think the prosecution also knows that Trump does not operate in a moral universe or an appropriate universe and often makes really weird choices. And they like to give him the space to do that because prosecutors eat that shit up and will use it in their prosecution. Prosecutors eat that shit
1: up. That is (laughs) merch. Eat that shit up. Popokian <laughs> that I is...
2: rarely curse on this podcast,
1: but the one time I do, you point it out. <laughs> well, I think I'm, I'm rubbing off on you, Popok. I don't have the <laughs> yellow card. So oh no.
2: We'll pull up the, Yellow card, you should celebrate my cursing. I will it matches po- your own. I don't
1: have a yellow card. I-, I will celebrate the cursing. I will reward <laughs> I will reward that Thank you. cursing. Popak, have you heard about better help?
2: I have. You've heard and about and BetterHelp.
1: And and Better and you Help, know why
2: I have heard about it? Because, they, because they've been a tremendous sponsor for us. No,
1: BetterHelp's been a great sponsor for us. And look, being a lawyer uh, is very stressful. You know, I think it's important that lawyers get exercise, that whether you're a lawyer or not a lawyer, but I think I could speak from a lawyer, you got to get some exercise, you got to take some breaks. But I think that in all of the stress that people go through today, Having a mental health break is important and focusing on your mental health is important. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. If there is something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Isn't that right, Popa?
2: Yeah, I, I, it is. And I'll tell you back to the mental health issue. I was walking around a home improvement store this morning. I know you always talk about Popak on errands. And one of the things I thought about is the impact of COVID hasn't just been on the logistical supply chain of the world. It's been on the logistics of people and individuals and the impact on depression and emotional health and spiritual health. And it it's just, I don't know what made me dawn to think about that. I knew we were going to have the podcast today, but, but certainly it's something that mental health and therapists who are, who are connected to you is something that's really, really important. So look, from a better, from better help, um, you can start communicating with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's, it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely Online. And there's a broad range of experts that are available, um, which may not be locally available to you in your own community. The, the service is available for clients worldwide, which is great for Legal AF and Midas Touch because we have listeners and followers really around the world. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't have to ever sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with like traditional therapy. BetterHelp, H E L P, is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if you need it. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. I mean, and there's some great testimonials on the BetterHelp website, Ben that uh, really resonated with both of us. Didn't you think so?
1: Yeah. Go to betterhelp.com slash reviews. That's com slash reviews here from uh, customers of BetterHelp. And now what you should do is go to betterhelp.com slash legal AF that's better legalAF slash legal af and join over two million people who have been taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using better help that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 space, all 50 states. Special offer for legal AF listeners. Listen up, legal AF listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp, H-E-L-P, that's betterhelp.com slash legal AF. And you spell that L-E-G-A-L-A-F. That's betterhelp.com slash legal
0: AF. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
1: Popak, last segment of the show. I want to talk about the Supreme Court's upcoming term. Give us a bit of a summary, Popak, about what is going on here. What does it mean that we're in the next term? And at the highest level, Popak, what cases should we be looking at right now as we head into this term?
2: Yeah, when we when we launched Legal AF, we were just in the throes of the beginning of what you and I referred to as Supreme Court season, and and now we're at the point where we can really give um, a timeline and an interval, and a little bit of a ten thousand foot view of the Supreme Court season, so that as you and I every week update with results of oral arguments and results of decisions. There's some sort of framework that our legal AF listeners and followers and students, if you will, can uh, can hang hang each piece of information on. So the Supreme Court term starts the first October, the first Monday in October, which is this Monday. There's some conferences that the Supreme Court justices have all nine of them prior to that to finalize um, what cases they're going to take for the term and what cases they're going to hear an oral argument for the term. They do about 70 to 80 oral arguments between October and April. So October of 2021 to April of 2022, they'll do, let's say, about 80 oral arguments and they'll issue decisions throughout the year. And those decisions, by the way, both the oral arguments and the decisions can be found for those that want to do additional homework and research for extra credit at supremecourt.gov. If you go on supremecourt.gov, you will be able to find at the end of every week a transcript of the oral arguments that happened. And you'll be able to find as it decisions are issued, that's where you're going to find them. So, what what did we have to start this term? Well, the first thing they had to get around to was swearing in, again, Amy Coney Barrett at some big investiture ceremony. So they did that already. Apparently, Kavanaugh had COVID and couldn't participate in the investiture. So he's not going to be there either. So the um, oral arguments, which are uh, before the full nine-person Supreme Court will be for the first time in two years, live and in person, not by Zoom. And that's going to start with the first hearing um, on Monday. Um, They have uh, caucuses related to the oral argument. They have clerks that are assigned to each Supreme Court justice. We'll talk at another podcast about how you become a Supreme Court clerk. I know some of our Uh, followers and listeners are interested in that. But the clerks do a lot of heavy lifting as it relates to each case and getting getting each member of the Supreme Court prepared for oral argument and ultimately for testimony. The the interesting thing leading into this Supreme Court season is how much members of the right wing of the party have spent this summer trying trying to defend the institution of the Supreme Court and their own decisions. So you had Amy Coney Barrett giving a speech at the McConnell Center. You had um just this week Samuel Samuel Alito at the University of Notre Dame, which was Amy Coney Barrett's home home court when she was on the faculty of the law school giving a speech and you had Thomas giving a speech and all of them were trying to say, oh, don't blame the institution of the Supreme Court. We know what we're doing. We don't really operate a shadow docket. You know, have faith in us and the media should back off and stop trying to intimidate us. That was Alito's words from yesterday. Um, Kind of odd, right? I mean, you know, Supreme Court justices
1: do give speeches. Remember when I went to Georgetown Law, we had Ruth Bader Ginsburg would come in and speak, you know, lots of Supreme Court justices would speak. But usually it is on broader kind of constitutional principles, and they try to avoid really talking about specific uh, cases and criticisms, and right. not looking defensive. And here you have a lot of these um justices out there. And the ultimate irony is that they are proving um the point that they are trying to disprove by coming out and sounding so defensive and sounding yeah. so political and sounding so impartial, sounding so not impartial. Uh,
2: I found it fascinating right to your point, because, you know, if you went to a, a really great law school like you and I did, you had the opportunity to rub elbows with Supreme Court justices. You went to school right in Washington, D.C. I went to Duke Law and, you know, we it was only a three hour drive from D.C. So we had a lot of Supreme Court justices come down to judge, moot court competitions and and give speeches. We had um, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people that, you know, that I was able to have interaction with, but I've never seen in my review of the court, I've never seen Supreme Court justices talk about matters that will be before them. Obviously, Alito took time to say we didn't overturn Roe versus Wade when we ruled on an emergency application to allow SB8 in Texas to go forward. We did nothing of the sort. In fact, we said we didn't do that. Even though Sotomayor, in her dissent, said, You basically just overturned Roe v. Wade and you signaled that you will. So I've never seen them talk about so defensively or at all about cases that are going to be coming up before them. And, and I, it, it is obvious that they believe that the institution of their co equal branch is taking a hit in the media. And is lowering their esteem in the public eye, and you know what? They're they're one hundred percent right. We talked earlier in the podcast tonight about the Gallup poll. It is they are in the the they are in the the bottom. That they are on the dregs of American society's beliefs about the Supreme Court and its and its contributions to America. People don't trust the court right now, and for good reason. So for them to say. Oh, trust us, believe in us. You'll see what we'll do this coming term. I found fascinating just into the mentality, the psychosis, the psychology of Supreme Court justices. You know who was silent over the summer, though? And and I thought that spoke volumes was Chief Justice Roberts. He didn't once defend the court in any way. What do you make of that? I think that that, though, is his style
1: in the sense that the way the Supreme Court maintained its legitimacy and the way chief justices historically try to preserve the independence was not by going out there and wading into political debates, but by following precedent and by letting the action speak for itself. And I think that behind the scenes, he's very disenchanted by what these mm-hmm. um, Trump appointees and Trump sympathizing justices yeah. are doing to his court. Popak, here are some cases that I'm looking forward to yep. um, and some topics coming up on the abortion rights Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health will take up Mississippi's ban on most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. This is a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade and other cases guaranteeing a woman's right and childbearing
2: person's right to seek an abortion. Don't, don't, don't leave that one yet. You know, it's, it, because I want this, you know, we're teaching our, our listeners and followers the fine points of Supreme Court practice. I went on the Supreme Court official docket related to these issues that you and I are now gonna talk about. And for Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health, the issue that has been framed for the argument by the Supreme Court is the following, quote, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions is unconstitutional. See, words have meaning too, and you've done a good job on these on these podcasts talking about that. The words that were chosen very specifically by the Supreme Court, in one sentence, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions is unconstitutional, has an agenda built into that language. You and I could have framed that Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health case any number of ways. I think it signals potentially what you and I have said, which is the defeat of Roe versus Wade by the court. By the use of that language. That's just I may be overreading into it, but that's my that's a my Popakian analysis. No, I, I think we need to keep following that oral argument there.
1: Will take place at the beginning of December. We'll keep everybody updated on oral arguments there. Gun rights, we have the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. This will test whether New York's denial of concealed carry permits violates the Second Amendment right. To bear arms on the religious freedom side, we have Carson versus Macon concerns parents in Maine who sued over the state's exclusion of religious schools from a taxpayer funded tuition program for families who live in towns lacking public schools on the issue of state secrets. There are a pair of cases that will test whether the government can block the release of information it claims would harm national security if disclosed. There's U.S. versus Zubaida will weigh whether a Palestinian man detained at prison on the U.S. base at Guantanamo Bay after 9-11 attacks can get access to information the government classifies as state secrets and FBI versus Fazaga, which will explore whether a lawsuit can go forward in which a group of Muslim residents of California alleged the FBI targeted them for surveillance because of their religion. And then on the campaign finance side, Federal Election Commission versus Ted Cruz for Senate is a challenge by Senator Ted Cruz to rules limiting repaying a candidate for federal office who loans his or her campaign money. It's funny that Uh, that I wonder who would that be?
2: (laughs) I wonder wonder who
1: did that. that Cruz took that to the Supreme Court, Popak. Um, I think I gave a fairly good. Summary yeah, that, and, and-
2: I'll give I'll give two observations on them. One that you didn't mention that I personally found interesting and we may end up talking about. It. And then on the Second Amendment in New York issue, which is really important. The one that's the one that I found interesting, another inside baseball matter is U.S. versus Sarniav, who was the Boston Marathon bomber. Um, he's claimed that his sentence should be invalidated because the judge in instructing the jury, or I'm sorry, selecting the prospective jury, did not let questions be asked about the media and whether they were influenced by the media in any way prior to uh, taking and being impaneled on the jury. We'll talk about the role of juries as this year continues and the impact on our judicial system. So I want to I want to have people highlighted on that and on and the and the interesting thing on the second amendment case which uh, you you rightly mentioned is uh, new york state rifle and pistol association versus bruin is that the underpinnings of the case and and the and what's going to be re-explored or re-examined again by the supreme court only 13 years later is dc versus heller and i say 13 years later, because in the lifespan of a Supreme Court, they really shouldn't be reevaluating precedent every five, 10 and 15 years. I mean, you and I talk about when I when I was in law school, we were talking about precedent from like 1787. The fact that every five years, because the political winds are shifting because of the composition of the Supreme Court is changing, they're reevaluating cases that they've already decided is really troubling. But in this one, in D.C. versus Heller, which Scalia, the late uh, An- Antonine Scalia wrote, they went into this whole federalist analysis of the text of the original right to bear arms Second Amendment. And in D.C. versus Haller, the Supreme Court decided that the Second Amendment applies to private citizens, not just to militia. And that was a big change in the approach. And you and I have talked at nauseum about the language of the Second Amendment and why that's probably not correct. But he, they went back and found all sorts of ancient texts and, and debates on the floor of the Continental Congress or whatever it was to figure out what they meant by the language of the Second Amendment. But one thing that they did say that Alito wrote was concealed carry, which is the issue in New York. New York has a ban on concealed carry, even with a permit. And Alito in 2008 in Heller said, oh, I don't think there's a justification for concealed carry, because if you look back, our founding father's didn't really want people secretly carrying guns. So it was interesting because he left open that you could regulate concealed carry in 2008. Of course, Justice Thomas hated that ruling. Kavanaugh has been inviting an attack on the Second Amendment or or support for the Second Amendment and getting rid of these bans. So we're going to have to see how the, the right, right extreme wing of the Supreme Court now tries to decide that the founding fathers thought concealing a pistol in their, you know, trench coat or whatever they're wearing back then was appropriate. And they're going to be doing all sorts of acrobatics and and contortionist tricks to try to get um, the, the ban to be unconstitutional.
1: And I would tell everybody, go to supremecourt.gov and look at the granted and notice list that has the October term for 2021 cases for argument. You can read through all the cases that are posted as cases are added. Um, you could then click on those cases. And special shout out also to um, the AP article, Abortion, Guns, Religion, Top, a Big Supreme Court Term, which is also does a very good job summarizing um, the cases. And it was written by Mark Sherman with. Special contributor Jessica Greco, and so everyone could check out that article too, where I got that summary from, and you can just look at the Supreme Court page itself, and it gives you a very good summary of the cases. Popak, have you seen the uh, quid Games? Squid Games, I think it's called on Netflix. <laughs> Squid Games. No, this is good. This is going to be like stump the Popak. What is seen- that? You got to check out this thing. It's called Squid Game, not Squid Games. It's on Netflix. What is it? It's got this first scene. I don't want to ruin it for anybody listening. I mean, it's incredibly uh, violent and incredibly kind of mind bending um, but it's uh, a case. It's, it's not a case. It's a, it's a show. It has nothing to do with the law. Um, but uh, I thought I would mention it because I just watched it last night. And it is a South Korean show that was bought by Netflix and put on Netflix. And it's a group of people who are in debt in South Korea, um, basically sign up to be a part of this game where they go to this private island to try to repay the debts that they're owed um, and kind of crazy things ensue, but you should check it out. Uh, is it a game
2: uh, show or this is no, a documentary or no, what it's is a this movie? It's a oh, movie. it's a movie. All right. I'm going to see it. Wait, before, before we leave, uh, I have, I'm going to do a TV your, show.
1: It's a TV series. Yeah.
2: on uh, Netflix. I'm going to do one of your jingles, updates, updates, updates. We got one I want to talk about off the Supreme court and that is just came out hot off the presses yesterday which is the um, attempt by the teachers union in the city of New York to avoid getting one dose of vaccination before school opens on Monday for tens of thousands of their teachers. I mean, just another scary proposition that the teachers union would attempt to stop teachers from getting vaccinated before they face to face children starting on Monday. So they filed again, an emergency application with the U S Supreme court, another one of these shadow docket things, but thank the Lord, the Supreme court justice that is responsible for the second circuit, which is the, where the New York court sits is justice. Ben, do you know? Sotomayor. Justice Sotomayor. Why does that matter? Justices matter. Elections matter. Because Justice Sotomayor, who's from the Bronx, who frequently attends Yankee games and sits in the Aaron Judge section, whenever the, you know, whenever Aaron Judge hits a home run, it's the all rise. She's been known to wear her black uh, robe from the Supreme Court to attend Yankee games. She is a New Yorker through and through. She rejected the appeal without oral argument and without even waiting for the state of New York to file an answer brief as to why the, t- the union was incorrect. So Monday morning, that having that appeal been rejected on an emergency application, the vaccine mandate for the state of New York for the teachers is in place, meaning if they're not vaccinated and show proof of at least one dose, they are going to be sitting home. So the governor Uh, How cool has announced that she's going to use her emergency powers to bring whatever temporary and substitute teachers and other staff that she needs so that the children of New York's education is not severely impacted. But so we finally got a great result. The, 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 the The wheel spun and it landed on Sotomayor. But, you know, look, this is consistent with the Supreme Court's earlier decision. Remember, even Amy Coney Barrett in Indiana University back in August ruled that Indiana University could do a a mandatory vaccination program for their, uh, their entering students. So, you know, sometimes they get it right and sometimes it's just the luck of the draw of which judge you get. And Popak tried to stump me. He failed. Uh, I knew exactly who the judge <laughs> and was. And I didn't know Squid Game or whatever the you heck it know, is. You didn't
1: know Squid Game, but you All should right. check it out. It's really incredible, wild show. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for tuning into the Legal AF podcast brought to you by Midas Touch with co host Ben Micellis and Michael Popak. If it's Saturday, it is legal af live if it's sunday it is legal af special shout out to our sponsor better help remember go to betterhelp.com slash legal af and get that discount that's being uh, provided today go to betterhelp.com slash legal af popak final words this was really fun we should do it again next week i think yeah i think we got something going here shout out to the Midas might mighty have a great weekend